Well, it's a great uh, privilege for me to be here, um, coming all the way from Boston and to, uh, to see some friends and, and meet many of you. Um, I've been doing ministry in Boston for about uh, 10 years now, planted a church there. People always ask me, are there, are there Presbyterian churches on part of the PCA? And I said, well, there aren't many gospel-preaching churches, never mind Presbyterian churches, but, but God has called us uh, to be there and to be a part of a larger uh, gospel uh, movement, and so it's been a great pr- privilege uh, for us. And um, why am I here? Well, boy... I, I've always told people I prefer to be with uh, other pastors, other peers, uh, to learn uh, from one another, and rather than just going to a large conference, because you sense as though if you're able to, to share your life and to share your experiences and some of the things that God has taught you, uh, then I, I, I sense as though that there will be a great shaping uh, potential influence uh, in all of our respective uh, churches. And so... That's kind of why uh, I decided to be a, a part of this. So thank you for uh, for having me. Um, my last name is pronounced uh, Um, by the way, uh, JJ. Unless you, you're from uh, from uh, Germany, and uh, which I'll allow you to pronounce it Um. But uh, just to give you a little bit of background uh, f- uh, for me, so I pastor a church in uh, in Center City, Boston, and it's a very multiracial church, as you would expect in a city such as Boston, and. And, um, but I also am part of a larger training team at Redeemer City to City. And uh, a handful of us have, have spent the last several years uh, training other pastors and taking the massive 5,000-page kind of manual that we have, uh, which we use for the Gospel in the City conferences and the incubator and all this other uh, stuff, uh, to train pastors throughout the world. Uh, not so much in North America, but in Europe. Uh, through the leadership of, of Al Bard and, and in Asia with Jay Kyle. And so John Thomas and myself and a few others have had the opportunity to kind of interact with the material. A lot of it was written by Tim Keller. A lot of it was uh, supported by the supporting staff. But So there isn't anything original that I'm going to uh, bring to you. I'm just going to kind of convey to you the material that I've been using uh, through uh, City to City, which I thought would be helpful uh, for this session. Uh, the first assignment is averting doctrinal drift, pursuing truth when opinion reigns. So I got that assignment. I thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty, um, pretty important topic. And so I decided to kind of respond to it this way. Um, I thought that we'd look at some of the reasons for doctrinal drift. Secondly, consider the remedy for doctrinal drift. And thirdly, practices for gospel orthodoxy. So the first is reasons for doctrinal drift. First, let me tell you what it is not and why there tends to be doctrinal drift. Number one, doctrinal drift is not a matter of secondary issues, right? And I don't have time to kind of go through all those secondary issues. I would imagine that most of us would agree uh, on those secondary peripheral issues. Not that they are unimportant, but they're just secondary. Uh, secondly, Doctrinal drift is not a matter of philosophy of ministry because we might all have a different approach to how we would strategically and contextualize our ministry in our uh, social location. Third is, doctrinal drift is not a matter of ecclesiological distinctives um, because we all have strong, I'm sure, convictions about some of those um, distinctives from our ecclesial traditions. Now, the basis for doctrinal drift, I've, I've It's similar, but I've I've looked at it in one of two different ways. First is a hermeneutical fallacy. 
That is, if there is faulty exegesis, then that will lead to a faulty theology, which will ultimately lead to faulty practice. Secondly, an applicational fallacy is just the, the reverse of that. Faulty practice, which leads to a faulty theology, which leads to a fault, faulty exegesis. In other words, a faulty practice might be you have an affinity or you have a desire for something which is not central to the foundation of the scriptures and of the gospel. But because it seems relevant or because it is something that, that others are thinking through, that this is something that is very, very close to your own heart. And therefore, you start developing a theology that will accommodate that interest. And then you will go to a scriptural text and you will have a tendency again to want to interpret that particular text as a proof text to support your theology, which has been formed by your practice or the affinity that you have. So it can go either way. I think there are unique temptations for pastors. The first is, is even if you've been in ministry for 30, 40, 50 years, there is an assess, assess, uh, what is it, uh, acceptability factor. Right? And that is that we want to be Accepted, right? Probably one of the the, the major idols that many um, public commu uh, communicators have. The other one would be receivability. In other words, we want our voice, we want our message, we want our ministry to be received well, for us to be accepted personally, and for our message to be received. And I think that that is a unique temptation uh, for pastors. And again, uh, one of the reasons for doctrinal drift, the basis of for it. So can I just give you one little example of what this would look like, right? Because we, we don't have a whole lot of time here. It would be on an issue such as the kingdom of God, right? I mean, this is a pretty massive, important, central theme in the life and uh, ministry of Jesus Christ, right? If you were to ask what was the central message of Jesus Christ, it would be the kingdom of of God, 85 times or so in the Synoptic Gospels, a few times in John, and, and a few times in Paul's writing. So, so when you look at the language of kingdom, we have to, again, try to understand what that means. And so let me, I usually don't like to, to get my interlocutor out there too quickly, but I just wanted to give you a quote of, of, uh, from a new kind of Christian, and this is the way it goes. You'll talk to her about uh, about God then, I asked. He shrugged. That depends, I mean. I'm not trying to say that kingdom language is the only right language to use. The fact is, if Jesus were here today, I'm not sure he would use that terminology at all. Maybe since commerce is a bigger deal in the postmodern world and governments, maybe he would talk about the enterprise of God. Or maybe with the whole internet revolution, he would talk about the web of God or the network of God. Or maybe he would emphasize the idea of family, you know, the family of God. Actually, the Bible does talk about the family of God. Or maybe with a rise in film and music as the dominant art forms, it would be the story of God or the adventure of God or the music of God. Probably he would do a little bit of all of these. That's the wonderful thing about life. It's hard to escape images and metaphors for spiritual realities. The last time I checked, the kingdom of God is a reality, not a metaphor. You see? You see how this is very, very subtle. And, and I would say that had Jesus been here, he would have definitely been aware of social media, right? I mean, he would have used that as part of his, some of his illustrations, absolutely, because 
because Jesus was somebody who understood culture. Right? I mean, he, he didn't commute from heaven, right? There is such a thing as the incarnation. He, he came to this world and he incarnated himself and he understood the human culture. But it's another thing to actually say that Jesus would have substituted the phrase kingdom of God with a web of God or the network of God. Why? Even if you were to look at it grammatically, the kingdom of God we just assume that the emphasis is on the kingdom rather than the source of God. You see, in the Greek language, this uh, case called the genitive case has many different uses. And, and it is just assumed in this case that the kingdom of God is emphasizing the kingdom, whereas the expression is actually referring to the source of the kingdom. Actually, the emphasis is more on God's kingly reign than on the realm if we're to do a word study on, on kingdom in the Synoptic Gospels. So kingdom is not a metaphor, but it is a reality. Now, we have to be very careful not to de-biblicize our vocabulary. I think it's completely valid to uh, de-Christendomize our vocabulary. I think that we need to get rid of all this kind of Christian jargon that's not really, really consistent to Scripture, but we can't de-biblicize our vocabulary. And so we know that, that the kingdom of God emphasizes kingly reign. You see how subtle this is? You see, so when people talk about the kingdom of God, and they're saying we need to engage in social justice, we need to be concerned about our community, we need to be concerned about breaking down systemic sin and evil, um, uh, in, in our respective communities. I mean, and these things are all good and valid, and we will see that that can be an expression of our response uh, in understanding the gospel. We have to be careful we don't bifurcate uh, the, the responsibility with the gospel. But what, once we get to a point where we say, well, this is what the culture demands from us, that we need to be a, a, a church or an institution or a body of believers that has a concern uh, for our community. And then all of a sudden, we start redefining all of our terms. Again, we need to start from the center, from what the scriptures emphasize for us, and move on from there, not in the reverse. Um, so if that is, if we're to just look at it briefly, the reason for doctrinal drift, and secondly, then what is the remedy? The remedy would be uh, we need to speak prophetically from the center. So how do we do that? Well, I'm going to talk about a few things here. So I'm going to talk about uh, Jesus' hermeneutical framework, and then we'll talk about getting the gospel uh, into our own hearts for our own understanding. So Jesus' gospel hermeneutic avoids doctrinal drift. There are two errors. One is that it is all narratival. There's no propositional truth, right? I mean, again, when, whenever anyone says there's no propositional truth, it's really self-negating because you need to make propositional truths to talk about the fact that there are no propositional truths. And so one of the errors is that it's all narratival. So many, many pastors have used this language, let's have conversations versus conversions. And I'm thinking, well, in John chapter 3, you had a conversation and a possibility of conversion, 
right? I mean, why do you have to say it's one over the other? Again, I think that it's, a, it's an overemphasis uh, that we're trying uh, to emphasize in order to move away from, again, a traditional conventional model because, because we, we want to be fresh or we want to be different, we want to be novel, we want to be entrepreneurial, we want to be uh, progressive, and so on. And this is not to say that we cannot have a contextualized gospel message that's very, very relevant to the times, right? I mean, again, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say that, uh, that those things cannot uh, go together. Um, so for Jesus, if we look in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Luke chapter 24, that we see that he is able to give a theological framework or a hermeneutic that emphasizes uh, what we will call a redemptive historical emphasis, right? Understanding the macro context, that is, the one-story plot line, and also the local context or the micro context, also understanding the author's intention of a particular passage or dealing with some uh, biblical principles and doctrine. So when we go to Luke chapter 24, I know that oftentimes we go here and we try to emphasize this kind of redemptive historical, what we will call longitudinal or diachronic, that is reading the scripture along uh, throughout history or redemptive historical, however you want to call it. We see in in Jesus' hermeneutic a balance between the two. So we know verses like verse 27 where it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, right? Just like in John chapter 5, is it 37 or 39, that he says that the word of God is testifying about, about me. Or in Colossians 1.15, Apostle Paul says, Him I proclaim. Right? Uh, the word of God is, is the means by which we understand the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is not the word of God necessarily which has shed blood in order to provide redemption for us. And so... And then we see also here uh, in verse uh, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? That's essentially the entire Hebrew scriptures called the Tanakh. Right? It'd be the Torah, just a reference to the law. And then you have uh, Nebim, which would be the reference to the prophets, and then and Ketuvim to the writings. Essentially, all of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, they are... Uh, talking about uh, about the person of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to also emphasize what we will call some of the systematic theological categories, where he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So again, you see the balance of Jesus as he em- introduces all of these important doctrines but at the same time situating, situating it within the context of the one-story plotline or the macro uh, context. Um, let me just kind of give you a working definition of the gospel. And this is very, very dangerous because if you can kind of summarize the gospel in a very, very short, pithy way, you know, because there's so much, but, but, but I'll try to get all the uh, elements here. The gospel is God has entered into a fallen world in Jesus Christ to achieve salvation through his death and resurrection for sinners who could not achieve it for themselves, but through faith and repentance are now able to enter into redemption and thereby live under his kingly renewing power. I'm sure there can be other things that would be added, but what do we have here? We have a holy God. What else do we have? 
So, it, so the, the, the gospel is theological, right? There's a holy God, right? But, but humanity has fallen, and sinners have rebelled against this holy God. And so there is the issue of our human condition and our need. And therefore, that he achieves salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. So, so the gospel is Christological. It's not only theological, it's Christological. It's historical. It was a historic event. Jesus came into this world, right? It wasn't just a morality. It wasn't just a message. And then he achieved this through his death and resurrection. So it's soteriological, right? I mean, it, it deals with salvation. We can't simply talk about the effects and the powers of sin and how Jesus came through his kingly reign is now reversing the powers of evil, although he did do that. But we also need to know how that affects us because we're caught into that evil, sinful, fallen humanity and how we are in need of being redeemed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is one piece, again, the blood-bought work or the issues of atonement. This is the one thing that is oftentimes absent from people's definition of the gospel. So they, they don't like the language substitutionary. I mean, substitutionary is absolutely essential. I mean, we, some people don't like to sing about hymns that have references to the blood of Christ. And again, how are we able to understand what it means for us to be saved and redeemed apart from his death and resurrection? For sinners who could not achieve it for themselves, but through faith and repentance. Now, this is also important too. Because in order for that, that news to be good news for us, we need to respond in faith and believe it in faith and trust in this Messiah and the Savior. And then to enter into Redemption and thereby live under his kingly renewing power. And that can mean whatever we want it to mean. Uh, but um, so we have to be careful that we do not pit the gospel of Jesus with the gospel of Paul. By the way, if, if some of you are wondering, okay, what is the kind of next trendy controversy within evangelicalism and so on? I think this is one of them. Of course, scripture is being challenged again after 40 years. But I think this is another issue where people are pitting the gospel of Jesus against the gospel of Paul as if those are two separate gospels. Right? So they'll say things like, synoptics 85 times. I'm the kingdom of God. I got up real early this morning. Uh, uh, the, uh, the kingdom of God uh, 85 times in the synoptics. In John, three or four times. John chapter 3 with... His discourse with Nicodemus, later on in John chapter 18 in his conversation with Pilate. And then in Paul's writings, it seems to be almost absent. So therefore, people say, see, the gospel of the kingdom in Jesus, when he was concerned again about, about the issues of systemic evil and social injustice and about our community and that sort of a thing in renewal, that's absolutely different than all of the legal categories of justification in Paul. And who knows what John was thinking. But, but people say that these are all different kind of Gospels. And um, I think that there are different expressions, different forms of the same Gospel, there's, but there's one Gospel. Um, 
Simon Gathercole uh, wrote a, uh, a three-point gospel outline that he finds both in Paul and the synoptics, and let me just kind of summarize it for you here. First, Jesus was the promised messianic king and the Son of God come to earth as a servant in human form. Okay, another way to say it, Carson wrote in his uh, essay, Spurgeon Fellowship Journal, he wrote, the gospel is Christological, that Christ die, dies for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ is a long-awaited Davidic king who will bring in the kingdom of God who is with us. Okay? So in other words, in, before Jesus can enter into the scene and to live the life that we couldn't live and, and to die, uh, the death and to die on the cross, before he could do that, he needed to enter into the world. He needed to come and to fulfill the prophecies about the promised messianic king. So the gospel is Christological. It's about the entire life of Jesus. Secondly, by his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin, for our sins, right? First uh, Corinthians 15, 3 again, and secured our justification by grace. Not our works, but received through faith. So we, again, we cannot collapse human rebellion by simply emphasizing the reversal of the effects of sin without highlighting humanity's major sin against God, therefore needing atonement. See, We can't just talk about how Christ has come and he's reigning as the king. Jesus is Lord. Absolutely he is Lord. But that in and of itself is not the comprehensive, exhaustive definition of the gospel. Yes, is he Lord? Yes, is he king? Absolutely. But what has that king done? He's come as the messianic king to fulfill all the prophecies through his incarnation and through his atonement, his death and resurrection has secured for us our need uh, for salvation. And thirdly, on the cross, Jesus broke the dominion of sin and evil over us, validated by the resurrection. And at his return, he will complete what he began already begun in the resurrection uh, by the renewal of the entire material creation and the resurrection of our body. So essentially it's highlighting the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. Now, sometimes, sometimes people get nervous and they say, well, why can't you just emphasize the atonement? Um, the atonement is absolutely necessary. That, that can't be absent, but you can't disconnect the the uh, atonement from the entire work of Jesus Christ is through the incarnation, how he, he is the promised uh, messianic king. Okay, so, so Gather Cole's outline summarized in a single statement. In Jesus, God emptied himself. He substituted himself. Uh, and he has, uh, in other words, Jesus is the promised Messiah who died and rose again for, the, for our sins in order for us to live under his a kingly renewal. And of course, we ourselves, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are already a new creation, right? That's why the resurrection is kind of a down payment of what is to come. It's an already and not yet way of looking at what he has done. So then finally, uh, what are some of the practices for a gospel orthodoxy? And let me just read for you an article uh, that, uh, that Keller uh, wrote, which is coming out in his uh, book, uh, Center Church, in a few months. And he makes a, a very important distinction, and that is the gospel is not the results of the gospel. See, I think that oftentimes this is where people make the mistake. They think that the gospel is equivalent to the results. 
In other words, should we care for, for the poor? Should we be concerned uh, about uh, brokenness and fallenness? And should we be concerned about issues within our culture? Should we be concerned about the needs of our people? And so on. Well, of course. And that, that is what it means to be a church. But engaging in those things is not the gospel itself. Those will be the results or the practices or the, the effects of the gospel, and we have to be careful that we do not get those things confused. Okay? Uh, but at the same time, we have to make sure that we don't bifurcate and separate it so much where we just talk about this and not have any concern for that, which I think many uh, uh, thoughtful uh, Christian leaders try to maintain that balance, which I'm noticing these days, which is very, very helpful. So, so he goes on to write, I am convinced that belief in the gospel leads to, leads to caring for the poor. It leads us to cultural engagement. As surely as Luther said, true faith leads to good works. But just as faith and works must not be separated nor confused, right? that's, not, that's the helpful distinction. Not separated, but not confused either. Okay, So they can't be separated, but they can't be confused and thinking they're the same thing. Faith and works, they're two different things, but they can't be separated. Right? That's pretty clear. So the result of the gospel must never be separated from or confused with the gospel itself. So, <clears throat> so I have heard people reach, uh, preach this way. The good news is that God is healing and will heal the world of all its hurts. Therefore, the work of the gospel is to work for justice and peace in the world. The danger in this line of thought is that the good news becomes a divine rehabilitation program for the world rather than an accomplished substitutionary work. And so at any point, if a gospel message is missing the death and resurrection, is missing the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus for us, for our sins, and it's de-emphasizing the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? that the gospel is Christological, and also satisfying through the atonement, the holiness of God, right? Remember that old term, propitiation? <laughs> that a holy God will propitiate it, right? In other words, that he absorbed the wrath and the holiness of God. That these things are very, very important to the heart uh, of the gospel. So, you know, again, we've heard whether or not uh, Francis of Assisi was the one accredited to it. I heard some historians say he's not the one who had to be uh, uh, accredited with this, and so... So that's good for him because I think it's not a helpful expression. Uh, we've always said, oh, Francis of Assisi has said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, right? Um, if the gospel is the word of truth, Ephesians chapter 1, if it is something that's historical, not just some, some sort of ethical teaching, it's at least that, then it has to be spoken in words because it is not something that I can act out. So when we say things like, be Jesus for that person, and what, kind of, what kind of statement is that? I mean, how can I be a surrogate savior to this person who is, who, is, who is addicted to idolatry? How can I save that person from the person's idols? You see, but that's the subtle assumption that's being made. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. No, there's no other way for me to be able to express to somebody about the gospel except through words, except through gospel proclamation, except through the fact that as the scriptures have outlined for me the finished work of Jesus, that this is what I'm going to proclaim. Him proclaim. Christ proclaimed Colossians 1.15. 
So, so some of the results and the practices of gospel orthodoxy uh, will be this now. So again, do not confuse. I am not saying all that I'm about to say here is the gospel. These are some of the results, some of the practices, uh, some of the gospel orthodoxy uh, of, of our understanding of the gospel. <clears throat> so I don't know what page I'm on. I'm on page four, I think, there in the outline. The gospel enumerated above brings God's new order of things, a countercultural alternative society, in three ways. One is, it's an upside-down kingdom, right? It's not right-side-up, it's upside-down. In other words, if Jesus emptied himself of his glory, Philippians chapter 2, he became nothing, right? He came in the form of a human being and died the ignominious death on the cross. If, if indeed he has entered into this world and emptied himself of his glory so that he would be able to identify, although he did not sin, but to identify with humanity, then he emptied himself of his glory. So this is a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking, which values power, recognition, wealth, and status. The gospel creates a new kind of servant community. <clears throat> now, lest you think that this is just kind of a, a moral lesson on service, what do we find in John chapter 12 and John chapter 13? We have two sections in the Gospel of John. The first is the so-called Book of Signs, where it emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ, right? He, he performs all of these signs, which was really a reenactment and a fulfillment of the signs and wonders in Exodus, right? Because only God has the power to exercise his divine prerogative to be able to, to provide miracles and signs and so on. And Jesus is exercising the same prerogative, therefore participating in the divine, unique identity of God. And so that's the, 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 that's the book of signs in, in the beginning part of John 1 through the middle part of 12. And then 13 and following, the second part of 13 and following, we usually refer to that as the book of uh, glory. And we would think that book of glory is really talking about, uh, about uh, the majesty of Christ, but actually it's referring to the humanity of Christ. Where it says that he will be glorified is actually a, a reference, the Son of Man will be glorified as a reference to his death. But what we find in chapters 12 and 13, where you have... Uh, the washing uh, of the disciples' feet. You have the women who, who, who washes Jesus' feet. When you have that, when Jesus says, well, you ought to do likewise, this is what you ought to do in serving one another, he doesn't give them a moral lesson on service and isolation from what he's about to do. That was actually a proleptic, foreshadowing picture of what Jesus was about to do, which was inaugurated through his entering into this world through the incarnation which will now culminate in the fulfillment of his dying on the cross. In other words, it is a radical reversal of the values of power, recognition, wealth, and status that Jesus was willing to empty himself of his glory uh, on the cross and therefore uh, giving us uh, all the reason and motivation uh, to be able to serve one another. Another implication is it's an upside-down kingdom, not an outside-in. Did I just say upside-down? I'm sorry. It's an inside-out kingdom, not an outside-in kingdom. If I know in my heart God has accepted me and loved me freely by grace, then I can begin to obey, have inner joy, uh, and gratitude. And the third will be that it's an already and not yet, right, which has started with uh, the resurrection, which will be 
completely consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. So what would this mean? Embodying this uh, within the church would mean that you will place an emphasis on, on church planning, on discipleship, on conversion, grace renewal, evangelism, all the things that we would know. But we will also emphasize to our community the aspects of radical giving, sharing our resources, spiritual disciplines, being concerned about the poor, and racial reconciliation. All of these things flow out from the ideas of the gospel, although they themselves are not the gospel. So, let me just get to uh, my maybe final point here, and and that will be uh, one of the uh, practice. Another practice will be preaching the gospel in all its forms. Okay. Now, there's only one gospel, but I think that we can uh, talk about the gospel through different forms or different emphases. Okay, let me just give you a few examples. When you go to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 3, uh, let me read for you from verse 21 and following, probably one of the most important texts in Scripture. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, this is just one way to do it. <clears throat> there are many different atonement themes. Many people have called them metaphors. Again, I don't think that they're metaphors. They're images. They're themes. Atonement themes. And what we find here in Paul's description is that he, he describes three different atonement images and themes in this one particular passage. He first talks about uh, how uh, that we are justified by His grace. It's a legal term. Whom God put forward as a, uh, in verse 24, and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's a commercial term. And then in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That is a sacrificial term. And so when we are preaching the gospel, the one gospel we can preach it in many different forms, just as the Bible describes, and I'm just using one example here of the different atonement images. Let's go to the last page. Uh, this is kind of mine, so I'll take some credit for this. Uh, I, I've, I found this helpful when I've uh, described the different uh, atonement themes, the aspects of the cross, the sin problem or the idols, and the result of the sin, and the gospel theme, self-substitution, right? When we look at the atonement theme, or when we think about the gospel, it's always substitutionary. Okay? It might not always be sacrificial, might not always be commercial or legal, but it's always substitutionary. Okay? And then there's a substitutionary image, and then a cultural dynamic or heart transfer, transformation, how we will respond to faith and repentance, and how it affects us, and, 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 and therefore uh, how we would engage our culture. So... 
So most people have like four categories, but I think uh, these five work here. The first is the sacrificial or the cultic one. So the sin problem here is that sin is an impurity, it's a defilement. And the result of that is there's shame and a sense of being unacceptable. The gospel theme is that Jesus was rejected and shamed. You see the substitutionary? It's, it's, it's a self-substitution of God, as Stott mentions it. And he excluded, uh, he was excluded so that we could be purified and cleansed from sin. Therefore, the cross removes the shame barrier between our fallen sinful condition uh, with the holiness of God. And the substitutionary image is that Jesus is our sacrifice. Or again, there are different words that are used. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. Right? I mean, you know of all the different cultic uh, metaphors uh, and uh, cultic images that are used. And I tell people that when we need to look at the one-story plot line and to see how in Scripture there's progressive revelation. In Scripture, in the canon, not outside the canon, but in the canon there's progressive revelation. That if we take cultic elements, if we take the sacrificial theme, we tend to eventually get to Jesus appropriately, right? We see that in the book of Hebrews and all throughout the New Testament. And I always ask people, why don't you do that with other themes? Why is it that you do that with a sacrificial theme? That you know Jesus is, is the Lamb of God, right? I mean, he takes away the sin of the... We do that with that theme, but why don't we do that with every other theme? So, again, if that's Jesus' hermeneutic, and if he sees himself as the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied and written about him in the Old Testament, that's where we ultimately need to, to come. And Jesus becomes the fulfilling, uh, uh, resolving uh, substitution. Now, that substitution might be ironic. In many cases, it is. In many cases, it is. Here, Jesus is our sacrifice. Then what would be the cultural dynamic? Those who are ashamed and humiliated may more quickly be touched by the depiction of Jesus as identifying with the excluded and the shamed and suffering outside the gate, Hebrews chapter 13. And, and, and this could be one way. Again, we have to look at the local context. We have to look at the micro context. And to see if that is a theme in that particular context, don't kind of just Im impose that theme into the text. But if that's there, then we've got to make this kind of a macro context, a connection with Jesus' atoning work with this particular atonement image being the substitutionary fulfillment. Okay? And another one would be a financial or commercial marketplace. Sin is an obligation. Therefore, the result of sin is a slavery, bankruptcy. There's loss. Jesus paid a ransom, right? Again, that's a kind of a commercial marketplace term. Debt is a marketplace term so that we could be redeemed. Redemption is a marketplace term. Out of bondage, he is enslaved and spent so we can be free. Jesus is our payment. Right? Pay for our debt. And those who are addicted may find freedom in the beauty of Jesus' dying to ransom them uh, from their uh, slavery. Okay, and then you can go on with the military and the familial and judicial. So some people, when they want to only emphasize one particular atonement image, because again, it fits into their view of culture and what they, what they sense as though is important for the times, oftentimes, as we know, we'll go to the Christus Victor military image of how he has overcome all the social injustice and the powers of evil and that sort of a thing. And even when they do that, they don't clearly make that substitutionary connection, although it ought to be. But again, that's only one picture of the atonement that we've got all of these other 
uh, forms uh, that are outlined for us, just as Paul introduced three of them in Romans uh, chapter 3. Okay, so I know that's probably very elementary, but I thought that I'd give you some reasons, the remedy for doctrinal drift. Um, I think it has a lot to do with our hermeneutical approach and, and gospel and, uh, and practices and results for uh, gospel orthodoxy. Okay.